Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mark Single, author of The Life and Loves of Thaddeus Stevens. Mark Single, author of The Life and Loves of Thaddeus Stevens. People who watch PCN are used to you being an elected official or a pundit on our networks. What made you want to try your hand at history? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, many years ago when I was lieutenant governor, uh, I was coming off of the Senate floor where I was presiding after a very contentious debate on tax reform. And uh, there was a lot of maneuvering, a lot of parliamentary, uh, parliamentary back and forth, and um, I, it, it got a little bit uh, heated during the evening. Uh, and uh, as we were uh, adjourning for the evening, I was approached by the, uh, the one and only Paul Beers, former historian of the Capitol. And he said, you know, that was the most fascinating session probably since Thaddeus Stevens saved public education in 1835. And I remember saying, what are you talking about? And I was resolved to uh, do some research, and I did. And lo and behold, this Thaddeus Stevens, as a state, uh, as a member of the General Assembly, delivered such a powerful statement on the floor that he saved the funding for what he called common schools. And because of his efforts, we secured the notion of public education in Pennsylvania, which of course became a model for the entire nation. He is the father of the public school movement in Pennsylvania as a result of that. And in your book, you say he would proclaim late in life that his greatest achievement was securing public education as a model for the nation during his time in the Pennsylvania. Exactly, he was most proud of the fact that he brought education to everybody, regardless of your social status and things like that. He, he believed that education was not only important for people economically, but he believed that it was an important fundamental piece of our democracy, that you couldn't very well vote and you couldn't very well participate in this republic unless you knew what you were talking about. So he thought it was fundamental to the survival of the republic, and he fought for it. So how did it go from that seed that was planted that day to this book? Ah, so as I was doing the research, I was stunned by uh, what a prominent figure he was. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens, who started as a, um, a lawyer in Gettysburg and then worked his way through the General Assembly, ended up in the United States Congress, uh, and uh, on, the, on the national stage uh, was the most prominent abolitionist. I mean, he was the most passionate person on the scene opposing slavery, so much so uh, that he was a constant thorn in the side to Abraham Lincoln, and uh, he was uh, fiercely insisting that he prosecute the war more aggressively, that he uh, write the Emancipation Proclamation earlier than he uh, wanted to, and, and those kinds of interactions. Thaddeus Stevens um, was the prime force behind the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. He was uh, the architect of much of the funding for the Civil War, uh, for much of the funding for the Freedmen's Bureau, Bureau that provided an opportunity for ex-slaves to get their lives back together. 
uh, and in the final analysis and, and, and uh, relevant to today, he was the one who brought the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson in 1868. So he had this huge uh, and fascinating career. And the research uh, that I did in kind of my spare time years and years ago convinced me that Thaddeus Stevens was the most important political figure in the 19th century with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. So the question arose, why don't more people know about him? Why didn't I know about him? And shame on me for not having uh, more of a, an insight into Civil War history uh, that I was not aware of all these contributions. And then I discovered as I went on that part of it had to do with the idiosyncrasies of Thaddeus Stevens himself and his um, uh, passions. He could be uh, malignant, he could be vindictive, but he could also be capable of absolutely stunning compassion. So uh, when, you, when you find somebody like that uh, who is driven by his passions, uh, it, you, you really uh, have an opportunity to uh, take note of somebody who is a great, great leader, and, and he was a great leader. What would he have been like to be around? Uh, fascinating. I think he was um, the dominating presence. Uh, if you were uh, alive in Thaddeus Stevens' time, and if you were in his presence, uh, there was a deference because he was so, uh, his intellect was towering. He was smarter than everybody else in the room, uh, but he didn't suffer fools very easily. So if you weren't on his same wavelength or if you weren't of his position, if you didn't agree with him, he would eviscerate you. And he could do that with his words and he did it quite often, whether it was on the floor of the Pennsylvania House or in the United States Congress. Uh, so everybody respected his acumen. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but he arrived uh, in the United States Congress uh, at the age of 50, uh, just by circumstance. He was a lawyer and a prominent businessman and so on. So he, he got on the national scene rather late in life. On his first day as a U.S. congressman, he received 27 votes for Speaker of the House, just because his reputation had preceded him. And uh, he was known for his uh, effectiveness and his political skills. I, I, your book is titled uh, The Life and Loves of Thaddeus Stevens, and there are a couple of controversies about his loves. One a woman named Dinah. Yes. You want to tell us a story about that? Um, it's interesting because the thread for me that uh, holds the whole story of Thaddeus, Thaddeus Stevens together and the reason that he may not have received his appropriate place in our history uh, has to do with a passion that he developed early, early on in life. Uh, and, and it may have been part of his upbringing. It may have been part of his uh, psyche that came from a very poor childhood and some very challenging uh, circumstances, uh, including being born with uh, a, a deformed leg, by the way. He had a club foot and he suffered uh, quite a bit of uh, derision because of it. I mean, some of the founding fathers in Pennsylvania didn't like the idea of this lame lawyer showing up and uh, they had a very strong bias toward him. So incorporating that and his own kind of sense of um, equality and fairness and things like that, uh, Thaddeus Stevens early in his career 
took on the case of one Charity Butler. Charity Butler was a slave who had uh, left her plantation and her master and come to Pennsylvania off and on for a period of several months. And she petitioned the courts to say that uh, she should be freed under the fugitive slave law because she had spent so much time away from her master that she qualified as a free person. Thaddeus Stevens took the case on behalf of the plantation owner and made the case that the fugitive slave law uh, did not apply in this case because she did not take that absence in one stretch. So on a technicality, he won the case, sent Charity back, uh, Butler back to slavery and vowed never to do it again and vowed never to be a party to anything that had to do with slavery. He was so uh, mortified that he won that case, but it damaged him, you know, and is in deep down in his soul. In my view and from my research and maybe a little poetic license on my part, years later, there was a, a young girl that arrived on his doorstep by the name of Dinah. And uh, when she knocked on his door, she was clearly in distress. She had uh, escaped uh, an abusive uh, owner and foreman on the plantation in Maryland uh, and found her way to Thaddeus Stevens' door, knocked on the door and said, Charity Butler sent me. He took her in and uh, made sure that she had uh, employment. She ended up being a housekeeper for several homes in the Gettysburg area, um, including Thaddeus Stevens. To make the long story short, <laughs> they developed a romantic relationship. And Thaddeus Stevens uh, was um, going to do the very dramatic thing of taking somebody of a different race as his wife. Now, back in those days, that would have been a horrible crime and a terrific faux pas socially, but he was determined to do it because he was infatuated and because he believed strongly that there was nothing wrong with interracial relationships. Dinah was found dead, nine months pregnant, at the bottom of a well in Gettysburg, and the supposition pointed directly to Thaddeus Stevens. His detractors suggested that he murdered her in order to salvage a budding political career, his proponents believe that somebody else murdered Dinah out of sheer jealousy and because she was finding a way out of her own poverty by uh, becoming a consort of a prominent businessman in the area. So that's the mystery that remains about Thaddeus Stevens. Was he an aggrieved lover? Was he a calculating murderer? I believe it was the former. I believe that he has demonstrated through his other acts throughout his life that he legitimately believed in equality for all persons and he was distraught over the loss of his first true love. I want to read you something you have in here by, uh, written uh, in a newspaper called the Gettysburg Compiler a gentleman by the name of Lefevre, who you say is the arch enemy of, uh, yeah. of Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, Lefevre's pa paper would be 
more and more creative in pointing to Stevens without falling over the precipice of libel. They referred to a universal opinion of guilt against an individual walking the streets in broad daylight with his hands streaming with human blood, yes. referring to Thaddeus Stevens. It was vicious. I mean, people think the politics is rough today. Um, there were uh, regular uh, stories that appeared in the compiler and a couple of other newspapers. Uh, and these are the northern papers. Later on, when he emerged on the scene as a, an ardent abolitionist, the southern editors hated him completely. Uh, he was the scourge of the south, they called him. And uh, they used language that was even worse than that. But the compiler at, at that time, uh, period in, in Stephen's life was his nemesis. And this Jacob Lefevre was relentless in innuendo and suggesting. And you notice he doesn't use his name and say, Stephen's killed Dinah. Mm -hmm. uh, but the innuendo was overpowering and everybody in Gettysburg knew who he was talking about. So much so that Stephen's eventually sued him for libel and won, and won the case. Uh, to make it clear that, uh, you know, you have no right to make those statements and you can't prove that. Uh, and uh, honestly, I believe that he did not commit the murder. I want to talk a little bit about the politics of the time because you have in uh, his first re-election bid, I guess it's just to the State House, he ran against a gentleman by the name of James Cooper and he wrote an open letter in his newspaper, The Star and Banner, Thaddeus Stevens' newspaper, to James Cooper, your ravings are those of a madman, not those of an accountable human being. Do you think that anyone will credit such a charge against a high-minded, honorable man like Mr. Stevens on the testimony of an ungrateful, apostate, dishonored wretch like you? <laughs> yes. Yes, and people think today's apology. Well, take so a step back. What, what you said, uh, let, let me, let's let that sink in. After the attacks, of Jacob Lefevre and the compiler and other newspapers, and they were raking him over the coals, Thaddeus Stevens had a Stephen-esque response. He said, I'll buy my own paper. And he did. Uh, and he had his editors, you know, and the people that worked at that paper promulgate his version of the facts. So, I mean, when people talk about cable news today and, you know, the competing points of view and people with their individual facts, it was absolutely the case in those days that if you wanted to read a certain version of reality, read this paper. And if you wanted to read Stevens version, read, read this. Stevens was not above using his own newspaper to his advantage and in fact destroyed his opponent uh, by a, a, a kind of a stream of uh, personal attacks on him that just made a fool out of him, you know. So it wasn't just Stevens taking on an opponent toe-to-toe -to -toe in debates and whatever, and it, he was, uh, it was tough for anybody to match up to Stevens' capabilities and eloquence and things like that. But just to make sure, he pulled out the, uh, the publishing weapon and, and drove that knife right into his opponent's heart. So make no mistake, you know, this is not hero worship. This is just uh, somebody who looks at a man of great passion and can... Uh, you know, 150 years later, make a judgment about what was good and what was bad about what Stevens did during his life. Where did he grow up? Uh, his uh, childhood was spent in Vermont, formative years at something called the Peachum Academy, and uh, where he learned right from wrong and uh, uh, came under the tutelage of one of his professors who guided him toward York, Pennsylvania, oddly enough. 
came to York uh, to teach as a teacher, but was committed to studying law. Uh, and uh, as, a, as a very young man, as a teacher, he was disappointed because he wasn't well accepted by the people in York. There was a certain amount of snobbery at that time for this outsider, particularly somebody who was lame. They used to talk about that lame lawyer on the corner. Um, and uh, so in order for him to get his law degree, he had to go to Maryland and uh, you know, present himself to the barristers of Maryland. Uh, and that's a, an interesting side story. It, it mostly involved uh, drinking and playing cards. Uh, and uh, after they were sufficiently libated, uh, they asked him a couple of questions and then said fine and gave him his, uh, uh, the approvals. Uh, but to his credit, uh, he continued to uh, study. I mean, one thing about Thaddeus Stevens, he was um, uh, brilliant and he read constantly and he taught himself all of the fine points of the law and um, the, the legal community was taken aback by uh, some of his uh, tactics and some of the inspiration that he brought to the courtroom. For example, um, he brought the notion of uh, uh, innocent by a reason of insanity. He was the first one in the country to, to try that case. Uh, and uh, he effectively and successfully convinced the jury that his client was nuts. And therefore, <laughs> even if he committed the crime, he was out of his mind. And it was the first time in the country that anybody had ever used that defense. Uh, and then, as I say, uh, as the years went by, he became more and more focused on this scourge of slavery that had, you know, begun to encroach toward the north and was uh, beginning to creep up into a, uh, a wave that was going to result in a civil war. And his method of opposing it was to take on cases. You know, after the Charity Butler case, he did nothing but abolitionist cases and took on uh, the, uh, uh, the cause of the poor and the oppressed and the enslaved and things like that and earned a reputation for being very outspoken about this. Uh, when he was first running for uh, uh, city council in Gettysburg, uh, he gave a, um, a strong speech against uh, Andrew Jackson and against the Democrats because they were, uh, you know, um, forming this unholy alliance with plantation owners and powerful interests in the South, and he would have none of it, and he found that to be abhorrent, and if we can't defeat the powerful machinery that had grown up around Andrew Jackson, then we've got to find another way to do it. Was he out front about being an abolitionist early on? Well, that's what I'm saying, yes. Uh, and the people in Gettysburg were saying, well, why? Why are you talking about that? That has nothing to do with being a councilman. And the answer to that was that's what he believed in. That was part of his passion, whether it was related to Dinah, whether it was related to his uh, just firm beliefs that all men were created equal. Um, he wasn't going to hold himself back. So you knew what you were getting when you voted for Thaddeus Stevens. You weren't just getting a guy looking to make sure that your roads were built well. You got a guy who was a firebrand who any moment would stand up on the floor of the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania attacking the president of the United States. Uh, and uh, that's the kind of passionate uh, person he was. So he was able to persuade a majority of voters in his state legislative district and in congressional district to elect this unabashed abolitionist? He, he was. Um, 
but not on an interrupt, uninterrupted basis. He lost some as well. Uh, his outspokenness cost him his seat once or twice, and he had to struggle to, you know, clamber back into the uh, political arena. Uh, but he, he was, uh, uh, you know, a good vote counter, and he was a he understood human nature, and he knew who the players were, uh, and he knew who he had to deal with in order to. Uh, uh, to get himself back into the political process. I have to ask you about something. You are very familiar with the halls of the House and Senate in Harrisburg, and you tell a story in here about uh, pretty much of a riot that took place over the election of a speaker and how Thaddeus Stevens was involved in that. Will you tell yeah. that story? This is the uh, what's known as the Buckshot War in uh, Pennsylvania, and a lot of people have, have no idea of, of how this transpired. The long and short of it is that uh, uh, Thaddeus Stevens was aligned with a particular faction, uh, and uh, the, uh, it was questionable who actually won, uh, because the returns from Philadelphia were different than what was recorded in the Secretary of State's office. And the reason for that is that there were some requirements of how those returns had to be delivered. And uh, on a technicality, Stevens had conspired with the Secretary of the uh, State, Secretary of State, uh, to reject the returns from Philadelphia and accept only the ones that were favorable to their candidates. So by their calculation, the Stevens faction had the majority. So they could bring their votes together and elect the Speaker and the officers in the Senate and so on. Well, as you can imagine, the folks from Philadelphia were outraged because they had in good faith voted and they had sent a whole different group of people, including folks who were about to elect the new speaker and so on, to the House of Representatives. Um, and what ensued was a riot. Uh, there was, uh, it was dangerous because the people that were aligned with Stevens walked into the chamber made the motion, it was Stevens who made the motion for the Cunningham House uh, and uh, elected the speaker. They voted for him and then promptly adjourned and got out of the chamber before anything could happen. Well, the folks from the Philadelphia delegation vowed that you will never set foot in this place again. The next time we do this, we're going to elect our guy. And in the ensuing 48 hours, um, there was one man who died of suspicious uh, reasons. They say he died of a heart attack, but he was healthy the day before, and uh, this is all around the Christmas holiday. Uh, and when they began to uh, move forward with the proceedings, um, the uh, galleries exploded, and people from Philadelphia who were armed and dangerous came directly for Stevens and the Speaker of their House and the President of the Senate. Uh, and they were, by God, going to get rid of them by uh, force, if necessary. So in one little uh, strange aspect of, uh, of Pennsylvania history, uh, there was a moment where Stevens and the Speaker uh, and the President of the Senate were all huddled together in a cloakroom. Uh, and uh, in my view, you know, I, I think I'm right about this, but historians may argue, um, it was Stevens who gave the key advice uh, to avoid a complete riot and bloodshed 
and that was jump, get out of here. So they jumped out of the cloakroom and literally ran to the governor's mansion where they had a, a colleague and a friend in the governor's and he pro provided them protection. Uh, otherwise, they might all have been killed. Politics was pretty lively back then. Very lively and uh, very interesting. And uh, Stevens, uh, I, again, was right at the heart of it all, all the times, for good and bad. I mean, here's a guy that, as I say, uh, can legitimately be credited with um, saving public education in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was also behind uh, a, a number of moves that provided incentives for people uh, to, to get jobs. Uh, but he also had some financial interest and had his own foundry uh, and needed uh, raw materials to go back and forth to his foundry. So he wasn't above supporting legislation for rights of way for railroads to connect his business interest as well. And he came under some fire for what they call the tapeworm railroad, which was a meandering through Pennsylvania just by coincidence to connect Stevens' various holdings. Uh, so he was, um, uh, he was not above taking advantage of his position in a, in a couple of uh, key areas. One thing about uh, that aspect, uh, as a businessman, he, he was um, taking advantage of the uh, demand for uh, iron uh, because the big railroads were just beginning to build their, uh, you know, transcontinental railroad, and Pennsylvania was a big part of that. So Stevens was smart enough to create a uh, foundry that was creating the iron that was being sold to the railroads to, uh, to create these uh, tracks. Because of their hatred of Thaddeus Stevens, um, the South took note of this, and uh, at the height of the conflict, the height of the Civil War, uh, on his way to Gettysburg, General Jubal Early diverted his troops, just took an extra day and a half to walk out of their way to destroy Thaddeus Stevenson's, Thaddeus Stevens's uh, foundry, to just to inflict some economic pain on the scourge of the South. That's how hated this guy was. So while there was some damage done to his holdings, the effect of that diversion was that General Early and his troops arrived at Gettysburg a day and a half late, too late to help Robert E. Lee. And that's one of the main reasons why the North prevailed not just in the battle, but the war itself. So in a weird way, it was the vengeance of the South against this abolitionist that was their own downfall. You say in the book there are rumors that his father was a fellow by the name of Talleyrand, who turns out was Napoleon's Secretary of State. Yes. Well, how did those rumors get started? Uh, because uh, Talleyrand de Perigord, uh, was fond of the United States, and uh, like uh, Lafayette, he took an interest in this uh, growing uh, frontier that we, we had here. So he visited the country several times, uh, and uh, Talleyrand had a um, uh, reputation 
for being enamored of uh, pretty young American women. And the supposition is that he had an affair with a young woman in Vermont on one of his treks through the Northeast. Uh, and uh, there are many who believe that that is the case because Thaddeus Stevens uh, was born of Sarah uh, Stevens, whose husband was a drunk, uh, who was a, a blacksmith, a hard worker, and that kind of thing, but not very uh, accomplished or polished, and certainly not uh, any of the erudition that Thaddeus Stevens demonstrated later. So that, uh, yeah, that's a tantalizing rumor. I cannot confirm or deny, but Stevens may have been the son of a uh, scalawag count, uh, which explains a little bit of his, uh, his bearing uh, in the political process. Now, Thaddeus Stevens was part of a movement called the Anti-Masonic Party. What was that all about? That was, um, uh, in my view, an opportunistic way that Thaddeus Stevens injected himself on the state and the uh, national scene. Uh, what occurred was uh, this growing suspicion about uh, cults. Uh, and there was this, uh, the beginning of a distrust of uh, the Masons, the Freemasons, they were called at that time. I mean, even though most of our founding fathers were Freemasons and so on, there was a supposition, particularly among the Pennsylvania Dutch, that said, who are these guys and what are these rituals they're doing? And, you know, what are these oaths that they are taking? Uh, and there was some supposition that they were more loyal to their Freemasonry than they were to their country. And that was a way of self-enrichment. Uh, and, you know, there was just a great deal of suspicion. So um, Thaddeus Stevens uh, capitalized on that suspicion by blowing that ember of suspicion into a fire of just pure hatred. So he built an entire party around the anti-Masons, you know, saying, join me and we'll make sure that these guys don't take over. <clears throat> and uh, whether it was right or not or fair or not, and whether he was completely misjudging uh, what the Masons stood for, because we all know today the Masons is, is a legitimate organization that does a tremendous amount of things for the community, but he was not above fanning those flames and, and, and using it to encourage people to, to vote. And in fact, he ended up um, um, at least winning a couple of governorships over this. And yeah, if you look at Pennsylvania's himself. list of governors <clears throat> and look down the list of parties, there's an anti-Masonic governor of Pennsylvania. Oh, that is correct. That is correct. It was uh, after George Wolfe, and it was uh, Rittner, I believe, who was the uh, anti-Masonic uh, governor who was elected during that era with the thrust of Stevens behind the scenes, pulling of the strings and, and, and what have you. Um, and I think at that time, though, there were, people were, were kind of searching, trying to look for a, a way out of the dilemma that they faced, which was the Democratic Party had kind of arisen as an anti-Jefferson party uh, led by Andrew Jackson, who had a tremendous amount of power. And he was smart enough to kind of present himself as the people's uh, president and to form a coalition with the southern states that was pretty strong. The problem is that it was infected by this uh, approval of slavery. The Republican Party had not yet formed, and they were uh, beside themselves trying to figure out how we deal with the Democrats 
uh, if we're not organized as a party. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it was only uh, when John C. Fremont in 1856 finally said, well, let's just take a shot at this. Let's organize a Republican Party. Let's take all the Whigs. Let's take all the anti-Democrats. Let's take the no-nothings. Let's take the free store, whatever, and put them all together and see if we can't launch a legitimate alternative to that, which ended up basically being a Northern Party. So the Republican Party that was formed in 1856 was the antidote to the Southern Democratic Party. And in walked Abraham Lincoln in 1860 to take the reins of that party. But it was um, partly because of people like Thaddeus Stevens who presented people with alternatives. And until there was a, uh, a coalition of these kind of different factors, we were not gonna stop the continued rise of Southern power and slavery throughout the country. When was Thaddeus Stevens elected to Congress? Uh, in um, 1850, I believe. I'll, I'll have to check, but it was in, in that era, just before uh, all of this was, you know, what was... What was going on nationally as far as uh, the abolition and uh, slavery and uh, the coming of the Civil oh, War? Right? I, and he was elected that, as a Republican? That you, can, you can write volumes on about that. I mean, the slavery issue really um, began to... Uh, uh, to raise its ugly head because the Constitution of the United States didn't deal with it effectively. They left open the possibility of owning slaves. They did not flat out reject it because it was felt that that would have divided us right at the beginning. Uh, but because of that, uh, there were all kinds of compromises and uh, you know um, different aspects that were brought in over time. Uh, the Compromise of 1820, for example, had some slave states and some uh, non-slave. 1850, 30 years later, we were doing the same thing with the famous Henry Clay Compromise. Uh, and so that whole period of time, we were struggling to find a way to cope with the, the issue of slavery. Uh, and then you had a Supreme Court that was making decisions like the Dred Scott decision uh, that uh, affirmed the fact that uh, slaves were not human that they could be treated as, uh, as personal property and things like that. And then you have uh, the, um, uh, the story of uh, uh, James Buchanan, who ends up being president and uh, the only president from Pennsylvania, who was a tremendously smart man, spoke about five languages, was ambassador to Russia, <clears throat> but he walked into this snake pit and caught, found himself uh, in a, with a dilemma because the Supreme Court had held that, in fact, slavery under the Constitution was legal. And he wasn't ready to tear the country apart to, to fight against it. In fact, he had to say in his own mind that his job was to uphold the Constitution. And therefore, slavery was allowed to continue to simmer, you know, during what was the last, uh, you know, administration. But, Thaddeus Stevens grew up side by side with James Buchanan. When James Buchanan was president of the United States, Thaddeus Stevens was a congressman from Lancaster and they hated each other. 
uh, and Stevens let it be known, and he attacked him on a regular basis. I mean, imagine if, if the president was from your hometown and you spent much of your, your day just excoriating him. Uh, he did so because he wasn't strong enough on slavery, uh, because he thought he was ineffective, and because he thought it was time to launch an entire party, even if it meant slicing the country in two. You quote, uh, you say, Thaddeus Stevens displayed his usual bluntness on the question of Buchanan's effectiveness. Quote, there is no such person running as James Buchanan. He is dead of lockjaw. Nothing remains but a platform and a bloated mass of political putridity. A bloated mass of political putridity. <laughs> One of my favorite Thaddeus <laughs> Stevens lines. I mean, that summarizes his uh, ability you know, and his vocabulary, uh, but uh, his willingness to use words like weapons, because that was, that was Stevens, and he was good at it. So Stevens and Buchanan knew each other on a personal level? Oh, sure. Sure, they would, uh, they would see each other, you know, just because Buchanan would be back in Lancaster, or he'd be at Wheatland, or, uh, and there was one moment where uh, the story goes that the President of the United States, James Buchanan, uh, was literally walking down one of the main streets of Lancaster and Thaddeus Stevens was walking toward him and uh, there was a little bit of a standoff and Buchanan looks at uh, Stevens and says, I do not yield to snakes. And Stevens looked at him and said, I do, and walked away. <laughs> they walked away. Uh, and, and another a little remarkable story was uh, when Lincoln was looking for advice about uh, Pennsylvania, uh, another one of uh, Stevens's adversaries was Simon Cameron, who was a very prominent politician in Pennsylvania, but a little bit of a shady reputation in terms of uh, his own inclinations. And so he, he, he was a, um, <clears throat> just say, an aggressive politician that crossed lines once in a while when he had to. So uh, Lincoln <clears throat> summoned Thaddeus Stevens and says, look, I'm about to uh, appoint him to be my Secretary of War. Uh, what, what can you tell me about uh, Simon Cameron? And he thought for a while and he said, well, Mr. President, I don't think he would steal a hot stove. <laughs> and Lincoln laughed. He thought it was hilarious. And uh, he kind of uh, blurted that out later to Simon Cameron, Cameron and said, this is what your fellow Pennsylvanians said about you. And he was furious. And he demanded that there be an apology and, you know, his reputation. So Lincoln called Stevens and Cameron together and in the White House said to uh, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, well, you know, Mr. Cameron here is uh, highly upset uh, with your comment about the hot stove. And Thaddeus Stevens said, uh, Mr. President, I retract my statement. I do think he would steal a hot stove. <laughs> <laughs> so he was unabashed and so confident uh, that uh, uh, he didn't cower to presidents or cabinet members or ambassadors or, you know, party leaders. I mean, he, he just kind of uh, charted his own course. Did he get along with anybody? Well, uh, he did. Um, Lincoln, uh, for all the ups and downs, admired his acumen. And uh, there were moments where Lincoln and, and Thaddeus Stevens were conspirators. I mean, in a positive way. Uh, Lincoln wanted, uh, finally uh, brought himself to um, espouse the 13th Amendment, uh, freeing the slaves. Uh, 
and uh, he relied on Stevens to get it through the House. So there was a, a really close working relationship on getting that through with all of the uh, pressures and all of the uh, antipathy that was coming from the South and so on. So I, I would say that, yes, he got along with people um, because uh, they just simply understood his leadership ability. Did he, did he write much about Abraham Lincoln, about his opinion of him? No. Um, but there are, uh, you know, flashes. There are stories that uh, exist and some communications that go back and forth. And he wrote letters to Lincoln when he thought he was out of line and didn't hesitate to, uh, to correct him uh, and didn't hesitate to correct Andrew Johnson, too. I mean, he was in, in their face when, when he felt uh, he needed to be. So much so that uh, toward the end of the Civil War, when everybody was exhausted and hundreds of thousands had been killed in, in, that, uh, in that conflict, um, that there was um, some, um, uh, some folks on the northern side that were wearying of the, of the fight. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't at all clear that the north was going to prevail. And there was one uh, gentleman that uh, was publicly advocating that we make a deal, that even after all of the bloodshed, after everything that had been expended uh, and uh, all the risks that we had taken, uh, there was a faction of thought that said, uh, uh, let's just leave some of the southern states with their economy and their slavery and so on, and we'll move on from then. Just stop where we are, and it doesn't get any further, but let's not exact any further concessions from the South. Stevens was furious because that went against all of his grain, because at that point he, had, he was completely bought into the notion that we're all equal and this is nonsense and you can't own another human being anyway. So he made it clear to, uh, to Lincoln what he felt about that line of thinking and wanted to make sure that that message got across to him. So when Lincoln was invited to give the uh, Gettysburg Address, uh, Stevens boycotted it and he sent uh, a message and was quoted in uh, several newspapers as saying, well, it's appropriate that he's coming here to Gettysburg let the dead bury the dead. As in, if you come here and you adopt anything less than aggressive stand against slavery, I will not support you, and Pennsylvania won't support you, and you are toast in terms of your reelection. So he made it clear. And by the way, Lincoln fired the postmaster general, a guy named Montgomery Blair, as a direct result of that, that confrontation. He, he sacrificed him to, as a gesture to Thaddeus Stevens so that Stevens would bring Pennsylvania around in the re-election campaign. What did Thaddeus Stevens think of Abraham Lincoln's reconstruction plans? Uh, didn't, didn't think much of it. He thought that um, the, uh, the second inaugural address in which Lincoln said, uh, you know, we shall proceed with uh, malice toward none and charity toward all, which by the way, may be the best speech ever uttered by a president of the United States. Just think about the circumstances and think about the courage that that required to say, look, we're still together, we're still in this, and this is still the United States of America, you're welcome to come back in. <clears throat> Thaddeus Stevens was furious upon hearing that, and he thought once again, in the up and down relationship that he had with Lincoln, 
that this was another low because after everything was said and done, Lincoln was about to sell out again. And he was inviting the South to come back in, which had implications for control of the Congress and who was going to control the committees and how many people could vote. So uh, Stevens took it upon himself to create his own reconstruction plan. Uh, he made sure that he was voted in as the chair of the Reconstruction Committee as well as the Ways and Means Committee. So nothing happened unless Thaddeus Stevens approved it in the Congress. <clears throat> so he basically uh, put, a, uh, put a kind of a check on anything the president wanted to do. Uh, and uh, that was in place when uh, the president was assassinated. So it fell to his vice president, Andrew Johnson, to carry out Lincoln's more generous and compassionate reconstruction, but he had to face down the Caliban of the Congress, the dictator of Congress, Thaddeus Stevens, and Thaddeus Stevens made it clear that it was going to be his way uh, or the highway, and that's where the whole impeachment story began. How did Thaddeus Stevens manage to, to impose his will on the rest of the House? Uh, that's a very good question, and I think um, uh, I, I think the honest answer to that is uh, passion. I, I think that uh, whether or not you were on his side, you had to be uh, affected by his belief. One thing about Thaddeus Stevens is that in his mind, he believed that he was right, uh, and he was going to show you either by dint of his argument or by his fierce example uh, about uh, the correctness of his position. So uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine somebody that fiery and that effective. And, and by the way, even if he wasn't orating, even if he wasn't on the floor giving a massive, uh, you know, uh, Roman senator kind of a speech, he was working the, uh, the you know, halls of power behind the scenes, and he was a master at it. He knew exactly where everybody stood. He knew their strengths and their weaknesses, and he literally positioned himself as a master of the Congress. Now, you're, again, your book is titled The Life and Loves of Thaddeus Stevens, and we have not talked about the other woman in his life, Lydia Smith. Lydia Hamilton Smith, yes. Uh, he met her, uh, and she basically came on board to be his uh, uh, housekeeper. Uh, and um, I, I think he had met her years before. Uh, he was married to somebody who had passed away, uh, and she was married to somebody who worked on a plantation. I think he was a slave himself, uh, but uh, she had... Um, um, she was called at that those days the mulatto. Uh, I think she had one eighth or one fourth, you know, of uh, African American blood, whatever they they said back in those days. Um, that's so her on the cover of the book. That's her. That's her. And um, Stevens was again enamored. It, you got to remember that Stevens was so singularly focused. They didn't have very many friends. He had a few buddies that he played cards with, and uh, he had some professional acquaintances and things like that, and he had one true friend, a gentleman who was uh, a lawyer and a preacher by the name of uh, Jonathan Blanchard. <clears throat> but beyond that, he was lonely. He was by himself, 
And he wrote a couple of times that I don't want friends, you know, because they simply cloud your judgment and, you know, it's, they demand too much of you and uh, I don't want to be in a position of letting friends down and so on. So he had a, um, a kind of a mantra of just being his own man and going his own way. <clears throat> so the whole notion of friendship was kind of alien to him, except uh, that he had a, uh, a need for somebody, somebody uh, to be in his corner. And the person he preferred to be in that corner uh, in at least two times in his life uh, were uh, attractive women at that point, uh, and attractive women not necessarily of his race. Uh, he didn't care. He broke all the social norms, uh, and when he was a congressman, he took Lydia Hamilton Smith with him, and she ran the household in Washington, and the household in Lancaster, and she traveled with him. So uh, to those critics, you know, who were bigots and racists at the time, uh, he was somebody that was, they just wrote off, you know, because what kind of a moral degenerate would hang out with somebody not of his own race? So the Southern editors had a field day pointing that out. So his personal relationship with her was widely known? Widely known, widely known. Uh, I mean, he would have, um, because he was a leader in the Congress, he would have senators, House members, cabinet officers come to his place, uh, and he, they would be required to refer to her as Mrs. Smith. She was not the hired help. She was not to be treated like a servant, because she wasn't. And everybody knew that uh, she was uh, more than a friend to Thaddeus Stevens. Some actually called her Mrs. Stevens. but. Uh, it was completely illegal to even contemplate getting married, so they didn't. They just lived together, and uh, they, they were content with, uh, with that arrangement. Uh, I think that it was uh, affectionate. Uh, I think it was romantic, uh, and I think that he uh, was driven by his commitment to Dinah and Lydia to fight the good fight. And he did till the day he died. And uh, his luxurious head of hair was a wig? It was. Uh, not in the early days. Uh, in the early days, in his early 20s, and when he was first coming on the scene, uh, he was a very handsome guy and very uh, steely gaze, you know, they would say, and, uh, um, uh, you know, very uh, commanding presence in the courtroom. About the time of uh, Dinah's death, uh, he came down with typhoid fever, and the result was that it left him emaciated for a period of time, and he lost his hair. Uh, and uh, from that point forward, he never went out in public without uh, either a, a you know, black head of hair or he had a you know, reddish-brown, you know, but it's not that he was vain. Uh, it's just that uh, he didn't view himself as a bald old man. Uh, that was way too early for him to accept that. Uh, so, yes, every time you see a picture of him, that's a wig. Well, we have not really talked about his role in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. First of all, did he have a relationship with Andrew Johnson right at the beginning, or did he have animosity, or did that build? Detested him, <laughs> um, as most of the Congress did. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, in a gesture to try to begin the process of reconciling in the North and South, reached into Kentucky 
and found somebody who was formerly a Democrat, just recently turned Lincoln Republican um, as his vice president, and that was Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson uh, showed up on his first day in office uh, to take the oath of office and to swear in the other senators, uh, stinking drunk. Uh, and uh, the Senate Journal, uh, you know, uh, says that very clearly. They, they didn't pull any punches about what happened and how he couldn't even get through the day and he had to stop swearing people in and turn it over to the clerk because he had to go <laughs> leave the premises. So Bad first impression. His first impression was, who is this guy? And everybody was mightily embarrassed by this and they thought of him as uh, not just inept but <clears throat> kind of uh, kind of idiotic uh, but when Lincoln was assassinated uh, Andrew Johnson rose to the challenge of uh, putting in place the Lincoln type of reconstruction plan he felt a moral obligation to do what Lincoln would have done and out of reverence to the martyred president he pushed forward on it and wanted everybody to move very quickly to put aside animosities and certainly to end the war and to, to move on with everything. So Andrew Johnson's plan for Reconstruction was not more lenient than Abraham Lincoln's. It was similar? It was similar, yes. Uh, and who knows what Lincoln would have done because the charity toward all could have meant a lot of things. Uh, one thing for certain, he would not, Lincoln or Johnson, would not have <clears throat> been supportive of uh, the Stevens plan, which called basically for the South to pay tribute and to buy their way back in and to limit their political involvement. Stevens was, uh, yes, concerned about slavery rearing its ugly head if they had the power to, you know, gather the votes, but, but more importantly, he was also worried about um, the numbers of the South coming in too rapidly and just going back to where we were <clears throat> with them controlling things and not him. So it was self-serving. So um, the, the, the whole impeachment uh, issue was remarkable in that uh, they felt like uh, Johnson was in their way, that uh, they had already crushed the, op the opposition. The radical Republicans were firmly in control and. Thaddeus Stevens was their leader. But this Johnson was a wild card because he was beginning to think for himself. He was trying to do too nice of a job for the South. They didn't like that at all. So they conspired to uh, uh, take the next step, which is to figure out a way to get him uh, impeached and convicted. And they used the, uh, the uh, Tenure of Office Act to do that. They actually passed a bill that said that you cannot hire or fire people unless you have the consent of the, the Senate. And they did that to set Johnson up for impeachment? Just set him up. Uh, so in fact, with the passage of the Tenure of Office Bill, uh, Johnson had intended all along to fire Stanton, his Secretary of War, because he was playing cozy with the Republican, the radical Republicans and so on. He was their boy in the administration. So. He said, I'm going to have to fire you, you know, because you, you've got to carry out my plans, you know, not the, the people in the House, you know. So uh, he fired him. Stanton barricaded himself in his office, refused to go, 
And Thaddeus Stevens began drawing up articles of impeachment based on the fact that Johnson was ignoring the law. Technically, he was, but the law was clearly unconstitutional and was rendered as such by the Supreme Court years later. So Johnson had no choice. He had to dig his heels in and say, I'm not going to abide by this because this is a phony impeachment. You're, you're, you set this trap for me. You knew I was going to fire Stanton. But Stevens uh, marshaled the forces and got the impeachment articles rammed through the House, positioned himself as a manager in front of the Senate, and argued the case that this was a lawless president because he was not listening to the dictates of Congress. Never mind that they had set the trap for him. Never mind, by the way, that the other uh, architect of this whole impeachment tenure of office plan was Senator Ben Wade, who was the Senate president pro temp. Well, in that day, according to law, the Senate pro tem was the next in line to the presidency. <clears throat> if, because there was no vice president, remember, if Johnson had been impeached and convicted, Wade would have become the president. So he bought in to the deal. So there were all kinds of self-interest going on. <clears throat> but um, the, uh, the most fascinating aspect of that impeachment was the enormous pressure that the radical Republicans were bringing on everybody. They, they threatened them, you know, they followed them. They were merciless in, you know, beating them up to get a conviction vote. Uh, and it came down to one vote. And that man, a gentleman by the name of Edmund Ross of, uh, of uh, Kansas, stood his ground against his own party, against the evidence that they were throwing at Andrew Johnson, uh, and knew better and knew that if Johnson had gotten convicted, we would be fighting a second civil war. Stood his ground. Uh, this is your first history book. Mm -hmm. You think you might do another one? Uh, perhaps, yeah. They, uh, f from a Pennsylvania perspective, there are people that just have never gotten their due. You know, I'm, I'm always excited about Thaddeus Stevens because, again, it's not a hero worship. It's this guy did some fantastic things for this country uh, and uh, deserves much more credit than he has received. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm part of an effort to right that wrong. And, and if it's flat out racism, if in fact he was denied his due by uh, bigoted Southern editors and hypocritical Northern editors, we're in a different era. This is, the, this is how we should remember Thaddeus Stevens. We've been speaking with Mark Single. He is the author of this book, The Life and Loves of Thaddeus Stevens. Thank you very much. Thank you, enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.